Uh, well, we are going to <clears throat> jump right in this morning, and we're, we're headed into a new section of Romans. And so if you've been with us over the last few weeks, you've seen us kind of walk through what is the introduction and then basically Paul's thesis statement for the book of Romans. And today, uh, we're going <clears> to <throat> jump into kind of the meat of what uh, Paul has to say and the movement from verse 17, where we ended last week, into 18, all the way through the end of chapter 1 today, is jarring. And it's supposed to be. If you've, if you've ever been to Washington, D.C. and you've seen the Vietnam War Memorial, you stand there in front of a, a wall of names. And uh, just, you know, kind of behind you as you're looking at the Vietnam War Memorial is the Korean uh, War Memorial. And you think about just the amount of human life and human sacrifice uh, that was given uh, in those conflicts, and it's jarring. It forces you to confront the reality of that conflict and its cost to American lives and to families. And it's, it's striking, and it's emotional to stand there and look at it because of how jarring it is. Before we get all the way into uh, Romans 1, 18 to 32, I want us to remember exactly what's happened before this. Paul introduced himself in the audience, uh, the Roman people there in, in verses 1 through 7. And he laid out that the foundation of our shared identity as followers of Jesus is that we're loved by God, we're called by God, and we're servants or slaves to God. And that that identity stands on the foundations of the gospel. The gospel is eternally of God, that the substance is in the Son, Jesus Christ, that it produces obedience of the obedience of faith and that the gospel is to God's global glory. And then in verses 8 down to 17, Paul laid out what is essentially the theme of the entire letter. He said that as a follower of Christ, he's obligated to the gospel, eager for it and unashamed of it. And the reason is because the power of the gospel, that it is the power of God for salvation, it's the revealed righteousness of God from faith to faith, and that by it, the righteous will live. And Paul's going to work systematically from this point forward to unpack that gospel message and its relevance and importance to every single human being. <clears throat> and in order to do so, he has to do some kind of sound of music work, right? Let's start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. Romans 1, verse 18, all the way through Romans 3, verse 20, is one continuous stream of thought about the universal guilt of all humanity due to the presence of sin. When you look at your Bible, there between verses 118 and 320, there are a number of headings and chapter breaks, and it does us a little bit of a disservice because it breaks the flow of what Paul is trying to say. From verse 118 all the way through 320, Paul's trying to make one thing very clear. And so you're going to see this slide a few times over the next few weeks as we work our way through this section. This whole section, Paul is saying that due to the presence of sin, humanity does not deserve and cannot earn God's righteous eternal favor. From 118 all the way to 320, Paul is going to spell that out multiple different ways. Due to the presence of sin, humanity cannot earn 
and or does not deserve and cannot earn God's righteous eternal favor. We could say that in the positive rather than as a cannot statement or a does not. We can say it as a does statement. It's important to hear the other side of this as well. That due to the presence of sin, humanity does deserve God's righteous eternal judgment. We can say it either positively or negatively. And God, through Paul, God the author of all scripture, he's going to work through this idea in such a manner as to be sure that everyone understands that everybody is guilty. Why is Paul obligated to God and obligated to the gospel and obligated to all people? It's because Paul knows that everyone is guilty before the Lord. No one deserves or can earn favor. Everyone deserves judgment. So from 118 all the way to 320, he's going to work through that. Today, specifically, he's going to start with one idea, and it's that humanity has knowingly exchanged the greatness of glorifying God for the brokenness of ignoring him. Paul's about to describe all of humanity from the context of his own first century Greek and Latin world, and it's jarring and it's striking. And we read, you know, Romans 1, 18 to 32, and if you spend any time kind of studying Rome at that time, you think, man, this is pretty broken and and pretty messed up. But the reality is that The truths in these scriptures were true for people then, and they're absolutely true for people now. So I'm just going to read Romans 1, 18 to 32. If you've got a Bible, follow along with me. It says this, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, since what can be known about God is evident among them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless, and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. For this reason, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men, in the same way, also left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lusts for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty for their error. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do what is not right. They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. And although they know God's just sentence that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but applaud others who practice them. Welcome to church. I want to back up to verses 16 and 17. 
This is how Paul got us here. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. From faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Verse 18, for God's wrath is revealed. Unfortunately, our Bible puts a break in section there, and our minds think that that means that Paul has started a new thought, but he hasn't. That's one sentence leading straight into another sentence. He wants us to see right next to each other, the righteousness of God is revealed. The wrath of God is revealed. It should be jarring. It should cause a little bit of whiplash inside of us. God's righteousness is revealed through the beautiful power of the gospel, but his wrath is revealed against the ugly brokenness of sin. Those two sentences right next to each other should force us to confront and recognize the grisly reality of humanity. It's supposed to. That's what Paul wants. So as we start to work our way through this, the remainder of this entire section, all the way to 320, requires a firm understanding of that phrase, God's wrath is revealed. When we read that, when we think about God's wrath, we have very little frame of reference to kind of compare or conceptualize that to other than human anger. But those Two things, God's wrath and human anger, are wildly different. Our anger is typically irrational. At its worst, it's this uncontrollable emotion. Typically, even at its very best, it's often full of vanity and malice and animosity and a desire for revenge. Our anger is a poor, poor reflection of and comparison to the righteous wrath of God. We have no problem accepting that God's righteousness can be perfect in its object and in its quality. That's easy for us to understand. It's more difficult for us to understand because human anger is the only reference point we have that God's wrath could be just as perfect in its object and in its quality as his righteousness is. In the very same way that the righteousness of God is rooted in God's character, that it's an attribute of his, so too is God's wrath rooted in his character. The best way to think of it is this, that God's wrath is his settled, controlled response to his revulsion against sin. It means this, God does not ever fly off the handle in his anger. He's never spiteful or vengeful in his wrath. God is not in heaven looking for revenge because humanity has been sinful. In fact, multiple times, from verses 18 all the way down to 31, Paul, God, is going to tell us that part of the expression of that wrath is that he has removed his restraint from the human heart, from the human mind. He's delivered us over, is the phrase. And that that is part of the expression of God's wrath. It's not that God's waiting for you to sin so that he can jump on you and send some sort of punishment to strike you. 
evidence of God's wrath is that he's removed his restraint. That he's allowed us to just chase to the, you know, whatever degree we want, our own brokenness and our own sinfulness. He's pulled that back, delivered them over. It's really important to hold that understanding of God's wrath in mind as we move all the way through uh, this section, all the way to Romans 3, verse 20. Because what God shows us here is that his wrath is revealed because we've made an exchange, and the exchange began in the garden. That what we were intended for was the greatness of glorifying God perfectly in every way for all of time. The text even tells us that we can know something of God by observing what he has made. Verse 20, specifically, we can know his eternal power and his divine nature. Adam and Eve in the garden, they could know much more about who God was because he was present with them. Due to the presence of sin in the world, we've been separated. There's a gap between us and God. But just by looking around the world and at creation around us, we can know something of who he is. We can't know everything, but we can know about his hugeness and our smallness. We can know about the existence of this huge, glorious creator God. And we get moments of that in life. You drive to Colorado and you see the mountains. You stand on the beach and you look at the vastness of the ocean. Particularly clear night and you're out in the country away from lights and you look up into the sky and you see just the enormity of the universe and the stars. We have these moments where we understand even the most skeptical among us would look at those different settings and think to themselves, how did this get here? It's so huge. I'm so small. Look at the greatness of whatever created this. If you ever stood on the edge of the Grand Canyon, you get that sort of feeling. Scripture talks to us about that. Psalm uh, 19, verses 1 and 2 say this, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they communicate knowledge. And we've taken that knowing something of who God is, and we've exchanged it for the brokenness of ignoring him. Instead of standing in awe and glorifying and glorying in the greatness of who God is, humanity has made this exchange. We've chosen something different. Three times in this section, the word exchange is used. Even though we can see the reality of the great power and divinity of God, we've chosen to look in a different direction. We've chosen to worship something else. And we're without excuse, verse 20 says. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Humanity has knowingly exchanged the greatness of glorifying God for the brokenness of ignoring him. Adam and Eve made that trade directly in the Garden of Eden, but you and I would have done the same thing then and do do the same thing now. And so Paul moves on to illustrate just how that brokenness works. From verses 22 
all the way down to 32, Paul describes what I am going to call the sinfulness of sin. There's a level of brokenness to our brokenness, particularly before we come to know about the saving grace of Jesus Christ. It isn't just that we're sinful and broken. It's that our sin and our brokenness hides from us the reality that we are sinful and broken. If there's one thing that sin does really, really well, it's that it makes us horribly unself-aware. We're just blind to the reality of our brokenness. Our sin actively suppresses the truth of God from us. It hides it from us. And Paul lays out specific and clear illustrations of where and how that sin manifests itself. So I'm going to give three of these. The first is that we exchange the ideal for idols. Verses 22 and 23. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. The ideal, the original design, was for humanity to live in perfect fellowship with God and in continual worship to Him. That doesn't mean continual singing, right? If you're someone who doesn't necessarily love to sing. But a continual glorifying of God as God. And in sin, we exchange that for worshiping things that are not God as though they are God. Paul mentions four things there at the end of verse 23. Mortal images of mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Those are contextual to his audience. They were actual idol images. The picture there he kind of calls to mind should bring to mind for us the Israelites in the desert bowing down to the golden calf, right? An image. Today, we could swap those words out for the idols that we bow down to now. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless. Their senseless hearts were darkened. And claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling money, sex, careers, achievement, status. And what's worse, we haven't just created those idols We're not just worshiping those idols. Paul goes one step further. And if you remember all of Romans, in verse 25, Paul says they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created. Remember how Paul described what our identity should be? Servants of his. Instead, Paul says, they became servants of something that isn't God. We've willingly and knowingly allowed ourselves to become slaves to something else. And in contrast to God, who is a good and a loving master, the idols we enslave ourselves to do not and cannot give us life. We can be darkened. Our hearts can be darkened into thinking that pursuing that idol, getting more of whatever that thing is, is going to bring us life. But instead, that is a just downhill run to absolutely nowhere a bottomless pit. We've exchanged the ideal, worshiping God, the greatness and glory of God, for idols, worshiping and serving that which cannot and do not bring us life. But he goes on. Because he also says that in our sin, we exchange God's gifts for selfish gratification. 
verses 24, 26, and 27. Paul's specifically going to mention both heterosexual and homosexual sexual impurity. But we can make this sort of exchange with any good gift from God. I want to be just frank and upfront about a couple of issues. First, it would be very easy to latch on to what Paul has to say here about homosexuality and allow yourself to think that that's what the entire passage is about. It's not. The entire passage is about sin. What Paul has to say about heterosexual and homosexual sexual impurity is an illustration of the heart-darkening power of sin. You could do the other, though, as well. And you could try to completely ignore what Paul has to say here about sexual impurity and sexual sin. And with, without really taking something out of context or completely ignoring something without the passage, or completely ignoring something within the passage, it's impossible to read this section of Scripture and not see very clearly that Paul has strong words to say about what is and what is not sexually within God's good design. Paul's talking about both of these things in the context of sin. And what he wants us to see is that we take a good gift from God, sex between a man and a woman in the context of marriage, and we turn it into something else entirely. And that's an outlet for our own selfish gratification. We might try to convince ourselves that sex outside of what God has designed is perfectly fine or it's a victimless crime or whatever you might want to say. But scripture makes it clear. That's just not true. God is clear. Paul is clear. Any sex outside of what God initially created is a sin. We could try to convince ourselves that that's not the case, but it is. But here's the reality. We can make this swap with any of God's good gifts and turn them into a selfish gratifier. And so I want to give a couple of examples. Food. We can take the really good gift of food. Who doesn't love a good meal? And we can turn it into a selfish gratifier that becomes gluttony. Where instead of just enjoying food for what it is, we make food into something to be used just solely for our own selfish gratification. We can do the same with language in the way that we talk. Language is a gift. It's a good thing. We can use it in such powerful ways to build one another up and to encourage one another. But we can take a good gift and turn it into something destructive and turn it into something that we use for selfish gratification. We can do the exact same thing with entertainment. Joy and entertainment is a good gift. But sin in our hearts works in such a way that we can take a good gift and turn it into a selfish gratifier that becomes sinful and destructive. We exchange God's good gifts, God's good gifts for selfish gratification. And then last, he says that in our sin, we exchange human harmony for social strife. In verses 28 down to 32, there is an unbelievable list of sinful actions, sinful states of our hearts, sinful motivations. 
if we were to walk away from this passage and only think about heterosexual or homosexual sexual impurity, we would completely be missing the point. The passage isn't about those things. It mentions them as illustrations to its main point that all of humanity is sinful, that we've made this exchange from glorifying the greatness of who God is for the brokenness of sin. And so Paul rifles through a sweeping and jarring list here at the end. And humanity, which should have lived in perfect harmony with God and in perfect harmony with each other, instead is constantly in a state of social strife, and it's all because of our own sin. Because we're full of evil and greed and wickedness and envy and murder, quarrels, deceit, malice, we're full of gossip and slander. We're arrogant, proud, boastful. We come up with ways to invent evil. We're disobedient to parents, kids. That's striking that it's in the middle of that sentence. We're senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. It's painful to read that list. But that is the brokenness of our brokenness, the sinful, uh, sinfulness of our sin. And the depth of it is that left completely to our own devices, we can't even see that we've made these exchanges. Sin makes us just woefully unself-aware. We need the power of the Holy Spirit in our hearts to illuminate for us that we've made a knowing exchange for the greatness of glorifying God to the brokenness of ignoring Him. I want us to kind of take a step back here and get a 30,000-foot view of what Paul is trying to say. He's talking about the reality of sin in the lives of all humanity. Look at the words that Paul uses to talk about the presence of sin. Paul says that it's in our heart, it's in our heart verses 21, and then again in verse 25, that our hearts have been darkened, that they've clung to idols rather than to God. Paul says that sin's presence is there in our minds, verse 21 and verse 28, that our thinking has become worthless and corrupt. Paul says that sin is present in our bodies, verses 24 to 27, that we're bent toward giving our bodies over to that which is outside of God's perfect design. Again, not just sexually, but in all ways. Paul says that sin is in our behavior, verses 28 down to 32. I find it really interesting that all the strictly behavioral things come very last in the passage. And yet that's where we want to jump to when we talk about sin. It's easy for us to just skate right past the heart part or the mind part. We just want to focus in on behaviors. But sin is about more than our behavior. It definitely isn't about less, but it certainly is about more. Paul is drawing out the truth. God is revealing the truth that sin stains all of our humanness. The theological phrase for the stain of sin throughout all of humanity is depravity. The fact that we're inherently sinful doesn't mean that in every situation at all times we will always choose to do the most sinful thing. That's not true. We're capable of making a decision not to do the overtly sinful thing at any given moment. But it does mean that all who have ever been born since Adam and Eve and sin's entrance into the world are marked by the presence of sin, that it stains all of who we are. Our hearts are darkened, our minds are given over, our bodies and behaviors are stained. It does mean that our sinful attitudes, thoughts, are, that does mean that our attitudes, thoughts, and actions are sinful, and we should call them as such. And it does mean that even our good, 
or God-honoring behaviors can be done with an underlying sinful motive. Not each and every time, but definitely sometimes. And that was where we were going to end the message this morning, but it didn't feel good in my heart. (laughs) And Libby Skillman um, poked her head into my office and said, maybe you should go down to 2 verse 1. And she's wise. So we're going to look at one more verse. There's an important aspect to reading all of Scripture that's really necessary for us to keep in mind while we walk through Romans. And it's that Paul didn't write with chapters and verses. The lines of his thought don't end where our modern Bible translators put headings. It's like links in a chain. You can zoom in and look at one length and see the the strength of one link, but you can also zoom out and see the fullness of the chain. So we need to see the fullness of the chain here. As believers, particularly, we could get to the end of chapter 1, verse 32, see that a new section starts, throw our Bible shut, and think to ourselves, I feel pretty good. It's all these other people that are sinful and broken and are the problem, right? We would become like the, tax, or the Pharisee in Luke 18 who's standing next to a tax collector and has the audacity to pray out loud, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. And unfortunately, much of the world outside of the church views us in that way, that that's what we want to do. We need to examine the link closely here, Romans 18, 1, 18 down to 32, but we also need to zoom out and see the whole chain. When we read Romans 2, 1, Paul flips the mirror around, if you will. He says, therefore, every one of you who judges is without excuse, for when you judge another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the same thing. What do you do with this section of Scripture? I'm going to take a couple minutes, and uh, we're going to go a little bit long, but this is important. Romans 1 should create within us a profound sense of the sinfulness and the stain of sin. And by that, I mean our own sin. After those words in Luke 18 spoken by the Pharisee, Jesus pans the story over to the tax collector. And it says this, but the tax collector standing far off would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. We could also take the very words of Paul from 1 Timothy 1.15. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. To live a gospel-centered life means that Though we grow in our likeness to Jesus, we never lose sight of the reality of sin. Not just sin in the world around us, but the sin that exists in our own hearts and lives as well. And understanding the reality of that sin isn't some form of self-loathing or self-hatred. Seeing and recognizing our sin doesn't mean that we live in this state of just hating or deploring ourselves, but it also means we can't live in a delusional place where we allow ourselves to believe that the stain of sin doesn't still run through us. So I'm going to give you a little bit of homework this week, and it's uncomfortable homework. 
And step one is to just go ahead and name your sins. Write them down on a piece of paper. Get together with an accountability partner or someone that you're close to and talk about them. Go ahead and use the list in Romans, uh, the back half of Romans 1 as a template. Be specific. Call it out. Pray that the Holy Spirit would show it to you. But then go a step further and identify your idols. There's something under the surface that drives your sin. There's something that causes you to be envious, quarrelsome, deceitful, malicious, that causes you to gossip or to slander, to be arrogant, proud, or boastful. What is that thing? Go ahead and name it too. What is the idol that you worship instead of God? What's the exchange that you make? Don't stop praying that the Holy Spirit would illuminate to you what it is that is sinful and why it is that you do that thing. What idol are you worshiping? What idol are you tend to give yourself to instead of to God? And Romans 1 should create within us a profound sense of gratitude for the beautiful power of the gospel. One of the evidences of our sin, Paul says in verse 21, is not just that we don't glorify God as God, it's that we don't show gratitude for God as God. And so then the final step there isn't just to name your sin or identify your idol, it's then to take those to the cross. The gospel shines really brightly because of the darkness that it pierces. When we try to paint a nice white backdrop on our lives for the gospel to intersect with, we're not only lying to ourselves, we're disabling some of the gospel's power to shine through us. The only person you're fooling into thinking that you don't have sin issues is yourself. That's the way sin works. I know that you have sin issues. I know that I have sin issues. And yet we try to convince ourselves that somehow we don't. The beauty is that when you have a profound sense of the stain of sin in your own life, in my own life, we're moved to a deeper gratitude for the grace of God. I become overwhelmed by the fact that despite the wrath and judgment that I deserve, God has revealed his righteousness and extended it to me by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. When we see ourselves in a passage like Romans 1, there shouldn't be a feeling of self-loathing. There should be a sense of God thanking. If you've not ever placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I would go ahead and start with the question, God, am I actually sinful and broken? And let him guide you through that. Pray that he would show you whether or not that's true. Because when you arrive at the place where you say, you know what, I think I am, the good news is that the gospel comes right on the backside of that. Chasing on the heels of our understanding of our sin is the truth that Jesus Christ died on the cross for us. And as a believer, as a follower of Jesus Christ, to be gospel-centered means that you understand that God has done a great thing to move you from brokenness to save you from the eternal consequences of brokenness into a state of righteousness because of Jesus and that you'll stand in his presence forever. Amen? Amen. Amen. I am six minutes long. If you need to pick a child up, tell your, your kids point uh, teacher that you love them dearly and that Tim is sorry 
Um, I'm going to pray and then we'll go. God, thank you for this morning. Lord, I do pray that you would help us to see the stain of sin in our own lives. Lord, would you keep before us the sinfulness and the brokenness of sin, God, so that we would see the greatness of Jesus Christ. Lord, would you do that work in our hearts? We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Have a great week.